Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would, please take your Bibles and open to Isaiah 9. As has been mentioned a couple times this morning, this is our first Sunday of Advent, and our theme this year uh, is the names of Jesus. And we're going to have five sermons on different names of Jesus this first Sunday. Of course, it will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, coming from Isaiah 9. Next Sunday, on the second Sunday of Advent, uh, Pastor Matt will preach on the name Emmanuel. On the third Sunday of Advent, I'll be preaching on the name Savior and Lord. And on Christmas Eve, which is the fourth Sunday of Advent, we'll have two, er, two services. Uh, Sunday morning, Matt will preach on the name Son of Man and Son of God. And then that evening at 5 o'clock, we invite you to... A, a, a service in the evening on Christmas Eve, I'll be preaching on the name Redeemer. But today again, let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 as we enter into this first Sunday of Advent. If you're able, I invite you to stand as we read God's holy word. The Lord Jesus once said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them... Has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Friends, the grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, may we see Jesus this morning, even through the pages of the Old Testament, show us Christ, the one who was born of the virgin, this, this child, Father, that you have given us, whose name is Wonderful, whose name is Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Open our ears and our hearts to receive your word today. Remove distractions that we might worship you through preaching of the, of the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, please be seated. <clears throat> well, let me take you back to about 1988. 
I was around 11 years old, and my family that year went to Disney World. My dad was so excited to be able to take the four of us to Disney, and we went to the Magic Kingdom that day. Anyone ever been to the Magic Kingdom? Anybody? Yeah. And that day, I mean, we, we got there. I mean, my, my dad taught me, you know, if you're not early, you're late. So we were one of the first cars in the lot, you know. And by the way, I, I inherited that from him. Ask, ask Deirdre and my kids about that. But we got there, spent all day, you know, riding, you know, Big Thunder Mountain and, and Space Mountain and, and the Pirates Ride. And we just spent all day there. And we, and we were with my, my uncle. My uncle Ralph uh, was there and his family. And we spent all day there. And we got to the point where it was time to go. So, you know, we got on the, the monorail and we rode to the parking lot. And, you know, once you get to the parking lot, you got to get on a little other carrier to take you to your car. And it was about at that moment, it was 1130 at night, I think. It was about that moment. My dad reached in his pocket and he realized he didn't have his car keys. And we're, we're exhausted. We're tired. You know, we had already been transitioned from the park to the parking lot. And we were like, oh no, dad has lost his car keys and he lost them in Magic Kingdom. And we're thinking, how in the world are we going to find these keys? So my uncle Ralph and my dad said, well, let's, we got to jump back on the monorail and go back into the park. And, and they left the rest of us just standing in the parking lot as they did this. And they went back into the park and my dad thought, I really think I know where they are. He said, I think they're on Space Mountain. The, the, that indoor roller coaster. I'm like, well, even if they are, how are you going to find it? So here's how the story goes. They, they went back into the park and they went to Space Mountain. And if you know that ride, all the lights are off in that ride. It's a, it's a roller coaster in the dark. But the lights were on because the park was closed. And they, they went in and they saw everything with the lights on. And, and they took my dad and Ralph upstairs. And there was this gigantic box upstairs in the room. And they opened this box. This is a true story. They, they, they opened this box, and there's hundreds of sets of keys in this box. But I'm just telling you, as I was told, the story goes like this. When they opened the box, my dad immediately saw his keys at the very top of that pile of keys. Couldn't believe it. I mean, you talk about a needle in a haystack story. This is it that he went into Space Mountain in after hours and looked in this giant box of keys, and his keys were laying on the very top in that box. And, of course, they got the keys and, and came back and told us the story, and we were able to get in the car and, and, and go our way. Uh, but, friends, th th think about that story and think about all those keys that were in that, that box. You know... When, when Ralph and my dad got to Space Mountain and they saw the, 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 the box of keys, they couldn't just grab any key, could they? There, there was only one key in there that fit my dad's car. Even though there were hundreds of options in Space Mountain, and I'm sure there were hundreds of options everywhere else on every other ride, there was only one key that would unlock and start the car my dad's key to his car. And friends, I tell you that story because my dad didn't have the option of grabbing any key. He only had the option of grabbing one key. 
the key that started his car, because I want you to know that in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ gives his church a key. And it's a key that unlocks many of the mysteries of the Old Testament. If you've been with me here at Redeemer for some time, you, you probably know this verse from memory. I've talked about it so much. You say, Adam, why do you keep talking about this verse? Because this verse is the key. It's the key that unlocks our understanding of the Old Testament. And it's Luke 24:44. We'll put that verse on the screen. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. This is after the resurrection, before the ascension, and he's talking to his disciples. And he's talking to them about how to understand the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I need to give you the key. I need to give you the key that unlocks so many of the mysteries of the Old Testament. And here's what he says. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We've talked about this even in our study of Hebrews. In the for the, for the Jew, the Jewish Bible is called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. T stands for Torah, N stands for Nevim, K stands for Ketuvim. Torah means law, N means, or Nevim means prophets, Ketuvim means psalms or writings. In one verse here, and you see it in, in Luke 24, 44, Jesus says all three parts of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are all about him. Did you hear that? The law, the prophets, and the Psalms aren't just stories about things that happened a long time ago that are disconnected from Jesus. The stories of the law, the prophets, and the writings are written about Jesus. And that's the key, friends, that the entire Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus and talking to us about Jesus. So we have to say, how foolish would it be for us to not use the key? How foolish would it be for us to, to read Isaiah and not think about Jesus? Because Jesus himself tells us, this is all about me. So friends, today even in the Old Testament from Isaiah 9, I want you to see Jesus. And I want you to see how God, even years and years ago, promised to do a work through the child who was born in Bethlehem that first Christmas day. If you look at the back of your bulletin, here's an outline for our sermon today. Isaiah talks to us about the past. He talks to us about the future. He talks to us about the promised child. And then ultimately, he speaks of Christ's reign. So let's use the key of Luke 24, 44 to see how the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus. Let's look back at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, just the first half of that verse. If you have your Bibles, look down with me. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land 
of Naphtali. Okay, we'll stop right there. History lesson. In the Bible, after the time of the judges, what did Israel want? They wanted a king. And God gave them kings. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. The third king was David's son, Solomon. After the reign of Solomon in about 930 B.C., the kingdom split. It split into northern Israel and southern Judah. The line of David went with the south, Judah. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was the king of Judah. But the northern kingdom did not go with the line of David. They went with another king. His name was Jeroboam. And as we read and study the Old Testament, the northern kingdom, which again was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom under Jeroboam quickly turned into a very pagan land. The scriptures teach us that the people of northern Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam turned away from the Lord our God. And this is the way Hosea speaks about it. He says, the people of northern Israel began to love the raisin cakes of their false gods rather than turning to the Lord their God. Imagine that. You're so caught up in your false god and the raisin cakes, this delicious food that people fix in honor of these false gods, that you are so focused on the taste of this raisin cake that it turns your attention away from God and to this false god. The people of northern Israel fell in love with the world and the things of the world rather than the Lord, their God. So God, in 722 B.C., allowed something to happen to Israel. Do you remember what it was? A pagan country called Assyria came in to northern Israel and sacked northern Israel. They destroyed the capital of northern Israel, which was Samaria. They sieged it. They sacked it. And what did they do? They took all those Israelites into exile into Assyria. It was under the Assyrian reign of Tiglath-Pileser III, Sargon II, that northern Israel was conquered. And according to 2 Kings, the northern region of Galilee was one of the first regions to suffer from the Assyrian wave of destruction. Well, you can go ahead and put that map on the screen. Do you remember, you know, the, these maps, maybe in your Sunday school days, or if you want to flip to the back of your Bible right now, you could probably find this map. The northern part of Israel is called Galilee. And you see the area, the tribe of Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali is right there in the northern part by the Sea of Galilee. And what the Bible says in the Old Testament is that it was in these regions, this northern area of Zebulun and Naphtali, that Assyria first came and the Israelites who lived in these specific parts of Israel suffered destruction and they were brought in to exile, carried off to Assyria. So friends, think about that for a moment. That had to be a very troubling time for the people of northern Israel. They saw their cities destroyed. 
they lost their homeland. They were carted off to a distant land. And look back at verse 1. It uses words like gloom and anguish. And Isaiah is reminding Israel of their past. They're saying, this is what happened in your past. You walked away from the Lord your God. Assyria came in. You suffered from the Assyrians. You had anguish. You had gloom. It was a hopeless time. But Isaiah writes, but that's your past. That's your past. Isaiah now shifts and says, let me now tell you about your future. Because in the past you had gloom and anguish, no hope. But I want you to know, Israel, that in the future you have a hope. That hope is grounded in what God is going to do one day, even in your region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Let's talk, secondly, friends, about the future. Look back at your text. You remember we just read the first half of verse 1, right? Let's pick up where we left off and read through verse 3. We ended with the word Naphtali in verse 1. Let's pick up the next, ver- the next word. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a, in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So first of all, I want you to see what I call a change in language. A change in language. Do you notice that at the first part of verse 1, you have all these negative words. You have words like gloom and anguish, contempt and darkness. That's the past. But as he describes the future, he changes the language. He talks about glorious and and light and and, and joy. This is a significant transition. In fact, he goes and describes how much joy they're going to have. It's like rejoicing at the harvest. It's like men rejoicing when dividing the spoil. What Isaiah is saying is something amazing. Something bright and glorious and joyous is getting ready to happen in your future. And friends, it's right here. I want you to go into Space Mountain with me. And I want you to pull out the key. Not just any key. I want you to pull out Luke 24, 44. Again, that verse says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, right? And the Psalms must be fulfilled. I want you to keep your eyes down right now on your Bibles. I want you to keep your eyes down on Isaiah 9, 1 through 3. But I'm going to read to you a passage from the New Testament. It's the passage that Matt read a moment ago from the book of Matthew. Okay? 
I'm going to read to you a New Testament passage as you watch an Old Testament passage. So eyes down, verses 1 through 3. Look at Isaiah 1 or Isaiah 9, 1 through 3. And as I read you a New Testament passage, I want you to see how many words you find in your Old Testament that are now in the New Testament passage. This is Matthew 4, 12 through 16. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Dear friends, hear these words. Some of the most amazing passages in your Bibles is when a New Testament author, like Matthew, takes an Old Testament text, like Isaiah, and picks it up and brings it and puts it in the New Testament and applies it to Jesus. Did you hear that? When a New Testament author takes an Old Testament text brings it into the New Testament, quotes it. And he doesn't just quote it for the sake of quoting it. He quotes it so that he can apply it to Jesus. And he does that because the law, the prophets, and the Psalms were written about Jesus. We have been in the book of Hebrews for weeks now. The author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, so he quotes the Old Testament many, many times. It's the same with Matthew. Matthew's audience is primarily a Jewish audience. Did you know that Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer? It's because he's trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. And he does it right here in Matthew 4, taking Isaiah 9, putting it in the New Testament text, and he applies it to Jesus. So what we learn, dear friends, is that the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ that's written out in Matthew. We learn, as you look down and saw the words that were familiar, who is the light that dawned? It's Jesus. Jesus is the light that dawned that was talked about in Isaiah. You see these lands of Naphtali and Zebulun? Jesus is the light that has come and walked the area of Zebulun and Naphtali in northern Israel, in Galilee. And that's what was talked about in Isaiah. Because all Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment, they find their hope in Christ. Remember the key. Remember Luke 24, 44. Jesus, friends, is the future hope of Israel. Well, we've talked about the past. We've talked about the future. But what about this third point, the promise? Because this future hope of the one who walks 
in Zebulun and Naphtali, the one who is the light, actually comes to us as a promised child. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The promise comes in the form of a child. That God is going to deliver his future hope through a promised child. And in this text, the Lord gives this child four names. Let's talk about those four names in detail this morning. The first name he gives this child is Wonderful Counselor. The word picture behind that phrase is that of a great strategist. The one who is in a difficult situation with with other people, and people wonder, how are we going to get out of this situation? No one knows a way out. But the wonderful counselor, the great strategist, finds a way out. In other words, when there's not a way, the great strategist, the wonderful counselor, finds a way, or he makes a way. Can you think about some biblical stories where that might happen? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the Exodus? I mean, the Old Testament spends so much time on the Exodus. So I guess as a pastor I can spend so much time on the Exodus. Right? Just revisit this with me. Israel's in slavery. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't do it. Ten plagues, right? Finally lets the people go. So the people are exiting out of Egypt and they're walking towards Israel. And they come to the Red Sea. And they're like, oh my goodness, how are we going to cross this? There's, there, there's no way across. And then they look behind them and they're like, oh man, Pharaoh changed his mind. He's coming after me. If I go this way, I'm either going to, I'm going to be taken back into slavery or, or die. If I go this way, I'm definitely going to die. I can't handle the Red Sea on my own. Moses, I would like to speak with your strategy team. Who came up with this plan? Seriously? Moses, it, you know, I was in slavery in Egypt, but at least I had a place to lay my head and had a meal. Now, now you've given me, I have none of that, right? And now I'm in this impossible situation. I can't go anywhere. And what happened? They complained against God, and they complained against Moses. But then the great strategist showed up, right? The wonderful counselor showed up. Because when there's not a way... He makes a way. And I love that story. That, that, that cloud, that pillar of fire, pillar of cloud that was in front of Israel goes behind them. and puts him, God puts himself between Egypt and Israel, blocks Egypt. And then on this side, that great miracle of parting the Red Sea, Israel walking across, and then looking back and watching the Red Sea crash on the Egyptians. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the great strategist. How about this one? Remember Judges? Remember Gideon? Remember Gideon when he fought the Midianites? The Bible says that Gideon had 32,000 people in his army, which really wasn't enough. 
But what was God's strategy? Give you more men? No. Reduce your number. What? Can you imagine Gideon's like, what? Reduce your number? God took it from 32,000 to what? Do you remember? 300. Now, I'm a math guy, so got on my calculator. That is over a 99% reduction. Okay, if you're going to fight a war, do you think the best strategy is to have a 90, over a 99% reduction in your troops? But God was in charge, not Gideon. And with 300 people, Israel defeated the Midianites because of the great strategist, the wonderful counselor. Here's another one. How about Book of John? 5,000 people sitting there. Jesus says, go give them something to eat. The, one of the disciples runs. He finds this guy with two fish and five loaves. He's like, what is that amongst so many? Jesus like, everybody, everybody sit down. Just have them sit down. So the great strategist takes two fish, five loaves, gives thanks, breaks them, feeds the multitude, has one, two, three, twelve 12 baskets left over. When there's not a way, he makes a way. How has he done that in your life? Got this problem, Lord, called sin. I can't get rid of it. Can't wash it off. Can't go to church enough. Can't give enough. Even my best efforts are like filthy rags. I can't solve this problem on my own. The wonderful counselor says, I'll solve it. I'll send my son. And he'll do something that you can't do for yourself. He'll be perfect. He'll be tempted just as you are, yet without sin. You say, well, God, I, I got this other problem called hell. I can't quench the eternal flames of hell. God says, I got it. Because on the cross, I'm going to take my perfect son, and when he's on that cross, your sins are going to be nailed to him, and he's going to suffer the eternal consequences of hell in a finite period of time. Well, so God, I've got this other problem, death. Take medicine and try to live a long time, but I'm going to die. God says, I got it. Because not only will my son take your sin, not only will my son endure hell on the cross, but he will die, but he will rise again. Because death can't defeat him. The grave can't hold him. You see, dear friend, when you can't figure it out, God says, I got this. I will figure it out. When you think there's no way, God says, I'm going to make a way. Because I'm the great strategist. I'm the wonderful counselor. Secondly, God says, I'm the mighty God. The mighty God. Let me ask you a question. When someone says to you, give me an adjective or a noun that describes God, what's the first three things that come into your mind? For many people, God is love. God is good, God is kind, God is merciful, He's gracious, and yes, He is all those things. Let me ask you a question. Did this word come into your mind 
warrior. Warrior. Do you ever think about God being a warrior? Now, I'm going to, go, I'm going to use the Exodus again. I want you to think about being one of those children of Israel that you, you walked across the Red Sea, and you look back, and you see Egypt coming across. You see your enemy advancing towards you. And you watch God take the walls of that sea and crash them down on your enemies. The chariots, the horses, the soldiers being drowned in the sea. Wouldn't you think God is a warrior? God is a warrior. We should think that because that's exactly what Israel thought. I want to take you to Exodus 15. This is right after the Red Sea came down on the Egyptians. And here's what happened in the Bible. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They're singing this. They're not just saying it. They're singing it. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And here it is. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Imagine witnessing this. You have to say with Israel, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. I'll tell you what, I bet you Daniel said, the Lord fought for me when he shut the mouths of those lions. Because there was no way that Daniel could shut the mouths of those lions. The Lord fought for Daniel. I bet you Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, The Lord fought for me because I can't do anything about this fiery furnace. The Lord had to come and rescue me. Friends, do you realize that without God fighting, Israel loses to Egypt, Daniel loses to the lions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they lose to the Babylonians. And for us, Without God fighting for you and me, we lose to sin, we lose to hell, and we lose to death. But God says to you, I will fight for you. I will be sinless when you're a sinner. I will experience hell on your behalf. And I will be raised from the dead, defeating your last enemy, so that if you're connected to me by grace through faith, all of your enemies are defeated. Because when God fights, he doesn't just fight, he fights and wins the battle. He wins the battle. Why? The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's why Paul writes so passionately at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your sting? Right? Because Jesus has defeated it. He's the mighty God. Thirdly, he's the everlasting father. The word picture behind everlasting father is care. It's care. Everlasting certainly means that God has always been. He forever will be. As Revelation says, 
He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. But it also means that Christ gives us care. Someone once said to me, Adam, why doesn't it say, um, why doesn't it say everlasting son? Because isn't Jesus the son? And of course he is the son of God. But when you study the ancient Near Eastern context, the word father denotes care. It means someone who comes alongside his people and cares for his people. And doesn't Jesus do that? Doesn't Jesus say, come, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Doesn't Jesus say, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I care for my sheep. Doesn't God say, cast all your cares on Christ because he cares for us? Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Christ is our caring, eternal Father in that sense. And then finally, he's the Prince of Peace. Think about those kings I listed a moment ago. Solomon, David, Saul. Did they bring peace? Is there peace right now in Israel? You know, so many people thought that when Jesus came... When the Messiah came, he would come riding a horse, not a donkey, because if you ride a horse, that is the symbol of that you are going to conquer this military political battle. But Jesus came riding a donkey, not to fix the political military battle, but to bring peace, how? Spiritually, between man and God, and man and man. That Christ took down the hostility of sin between man and God and gave us peace between ourselves and God. The most important type of peace you could have. It's only through a relationship with Jesus that you can have peace. And we wait one day when Christ comes back that not only will there be peace between man and God, but there will be peace throughout the whole world. Which leads us to verse 7, our final point. The reign of Christ. Verse 7 says this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay. Um, This will be another big Bible lesson. We're not going to take all the time to do it. But read 2 Samuel 7. And you'll see that there's a covenant there between the Lord and David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, David, one day a seed from your line will come and he will sit on the throne forever. His kingdom will never end. And David had that son, Solomon. He's like, man, this is it. This has got to be it, right? Well, Solomon didn't sit on the throne forever, did he? Must be Rehoboam. First king of Judah. Must be Rehoboam. Nope. Rehoboam, he died. Who would be the king who would come and sit on the throne forever? Well, Luke 1. Luke 1, 31 through 33 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And that's where I would have you look at the Second Samuel text as I read this text, because it's the same thing as Isaiah. It's, it's found in both Old and New Testament. But what you learn here, friends, 
is that the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7 is realized in the son of David. Not Solomon, not Rehoboam, but Jesus. He would be the one who sits on the throne forever, whose kingdom will never end. It's through this promised child that God will reign. So what can you take away from a sermon like this, dear friends? Look at the last phrase of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does it mean to do something with zeal? It means to do something with intentional passion. Every time Megan and Joe get up behind this pulpit and announce the women's retreat, you see zeal, right? You see in, intentional passion to do something. Uh, it's, it's great. Do you see the way the Bible describes God's intentional purpose in sending his son? It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It says that God is intentionally passionate about working out this plan of hope in the future for his people. Amen? And listen, Isaiah... Isaiah, if you see the cross here. Isaiah was on this side of the cross looking forward to what Jesus is, is going to do, right? It's Isaiah's future. But for us, right, we're on this side. We look back. We look back and say, hey, we read and see and know and experience this child that Isaiah once talked about being part of God's church. And we rejoice. We rejoice. So friends, this Christmas season, remember the doctrine of Christ. Remember this key of Luke 24, 44. Jesus is everywhere in your Old Testaments. I want you to see everything that God has promised. God took Israel through gloom and anguish, but he brought them a light that walked through Zebulun, that walked through Naphtali. That light is Jesus. And friends, not only is Jesus the light of Israel, he's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. And he wants you to know that he is your wonderful counselor. He is the great strategist. When there's not a way, he makes a way. He wants you to know that he is the mighty God. He is the Lord who goes to war for you. He goes to war against sin and death and hell. He is your everlasting Father giving you eternal care. He is the Prince of Peace, the only one that will bring you peace with God. And as I said, we're on this side of the cross, right? And we look back to what Christ has done. But you can also look forward to, because one day Jesus is coming back, and he will make all things new. And there will be peace. There will be peace in heaven. We will know and live with God. He will be our God. We will be his people, even as we are now. I want you to know, dear friend, that on you a light has dawned, and it's Christ. Uh, unto you a son is given. It is Jesus Christ. An old Baptist pastor used to say, when you remember the cradle, remember the cross. Remember the cross. But that's the purpose which Jesus came, to die on that cross that you can have life in his name. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your friend, 
and be saved. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are thankful that you give us a key that unlocks so much of the Old Testament, and that we need to pay attention to Jesus when he says that the whole Old Testament is about him. Thank you for being our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace, O Lord. And we worship you this Advent season, and may we leave this place continuing to spread your word and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.